there's something about this passage that should move us, but, um, but if I'm being honest about how I encountered this initially, I was, was kind of used to it. Um, and I, I, I suspect that uh, most of us are probably uh, in the same boat, that most of us maybe are, are kind of unmoved uh, when we hear this. Uh, you, and that might be because you could find you could find the language complicated, so uh, you may not be able to understand exactly how all the words fit. And we're gonna we're gonna work through that. Uh, but I suspect that that maybe the reason um, the reason that this doesn't move us as much is because we're just really familiar with it. We're really really familiar with it. Um, and so I want to I want to talk about this concept of familiarity. Uh, because it is something that we need to be really, really careful with. So, uh, so familiarity can be dangerous. I want to talk to you about like what this looks like for me. So, I grew up uh, on the Mississippi River. Uh, literally, you could I could walk out my front door, and it, I could take a baseball and throw it, and it would land in the river. Like that, uh, yeah, incredible, right? Um, I did not appreciate the fact that I grew up on the Mississippi River until I moved to Chicago. <laughs> and then I figured out really quickly how cool it was that I grew up on the Mississippi River, that, that actually, like, from where my house was, I got to watch the sunset over the river, and I did not even recognize it. It's like people who, who live at the Grand Canyon, and, uh, and everybody from all over the country travels to the Grand Canyon, and they're like, what's the big deal? It's just the Grand Canyon. Like, that was the experience that I had was uh, actually in the winter, people travel from all over the nation to my little town of 1,800 people so that they can watch bald eagles fly over the river. It's really, really cool. I did not appreciate it at all for what it was worth. I was used to it. It was very familiar to me. Um, another reality that I've encountered sort of recently, uh, so I've been living in Chicago and doing Chicago winters now for six years. Uh, and so I got, I got really, I'm really familiar with driving in Chicago snow. And uh, that has been a little dangerous for me. And this year in particular, I've noticed that I may, I may be waiting a little bit longer to brake than I should. Uh, I may be driving a, a little too fast through the snow. I, I experienced this this morning on my way here, right? Like uh, the, the, you, we deal with uh, driving in the snow. We get used to it. And then as we get used to it, uh, we... Uh, might make some uh, mistakes. Uh, that familiarity that we have with driving in the snow can be dangerous. I want to I talk to you about a really, uh, you're going to like think this is sweet probably, I don't know. Um, so when, uh, when I had just met my wife um, and we were, we were going on dates together, and so this was one of our first dates, and took her to dinner and a movie as like the classic date thing. And, and so we're sitting at the movie, and Oh, it's so sweet. Everybody go, oh, oh, very good. And so I grabbed her hand, and then, and then I was like, oh, you know, you get like the fluttering in the heart and the, the butterflies in the stomach and all that stuff. It's like, it's like really exciting, right? Um, so, so like that was a really cool moment. And uh, I can tell you, like my, my wife and I, we, for Valentine's Day, actually, like a couple of days before we went to dinner and a movie, and, uh, and I, like we were at the movie, and I grabbed her hand, and I thought, like, 
man, that's just not the, it's not the same as it was that, at that one point. Like, what happened? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, anyway, uh, I, it just didn't, there was something about it. Like, there, the, the original, like, impressiveness of that moment was gone. And I think familiarity has something to do with it. Now, there's a good piece of familiarity, right? But there's also, there's also a shadow side to it. Because the more I become familiar with something, the more, the more comfortable I get with that thing. And the more comfortable I get with that thing, the more likely I am to become complacent with something that is truly remarkable. This is important because I was a seminary student. And uh, a seminary student's job is to become really familiar with the things of God. Like, we have to invest and study, and uh, we deal with, like, core foundational truths of the faith. By the way, truths which were intended to inspire awe and worship. Like, that was their original intention, and we kind of treat these at seminary like they're just mundane things. We don't um, offer them the the respect that they deserve, and so, um, so this was kind of a reality that that I grew up with. And, and that's one of the things that we're going to be encountering today because I have a feeling that today's passage is, is one that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, uh, you probably are, are kind of familiar with this passage because uh, what it does is it proves a theological proposition for us. And that theological proposition is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And, and even as I say that simple statement, Jesus is fully God and fully man, uh, it, it doesn't do a whole lot to move us. It's a very simple statement. It's a very static statement. And part of my struggle, even as I was preparing to preach, is that, that I wanted to turn this project into an intellectual project, where I was digging through the text to, to prove a, a theological point, but, but there was, I, I noticed that as I approached this text, there was a real lack of awe inside of me, and so, um, so that's really hard, because as I did research, and as I dug into it, what I found out is that this passage, uh, this was not actually, it, it wasn't written primarily for the purpose of proving a theological point. Now, this passage is actually like one of the hymns, the very first hymns of the early church. Like, the early church sang this together, to worship. Like the intention of this passage was to inspire and evoke awe and worship. So this morning, I actually want to take us out of the, the intellectual theological proposition land, and hopefully we can, we can move to a place where we might actually be able to, to receive these words like the first listeners received these words, with a sense of awe with a sense of worship. Now, in order to do that, actually have to, we have to do some work to understand the first listeners uh, because they had a bunch of context. They had things helping them uh, receive these words in a particular way. So I want to talk to you about the city of Colossae. Colossae was firmly situated between two cities, um, Aeropolis and Laodicea. That's kind of where it's located. It's located right between these two cities. And, I, and anytime uh, you, the, these are two larger cities. Anytime you have a smaller city between two larger cities, uh, that smaller city is inevitably going to be influenced by the culture of those two larger cities. So Heropolis, um, its literal 
uh, name. It means holy city. It means holy city, which uh, not, by the way, like the good kind of holy that we think of. The reason it's called holy city is because Heropolis was a place of pagan worship. Multiple pagan temples were set up there, uh, temples to Greek gods. And this is where a place where people would go in order to worship. On top of that, Heropolis had these like hot springs. Uh, the, uh, it was really well known for these hot springs that were set up, and they would build the, these, these uh, very lavish baths and, and, and places for, for luxury. So Heropolis was a place of luxury, a place of sensuality, and a place of pagan worship. That's Heropolis. Laodicea, on the other hand, was a massive commercial center. So, uh, so a, lot of, a lot of people doing a lot of work, getting a lot of commercial success, becoming very rich, becoming very comfortable. That's the kind of place that Laodicea was. And they actually minted their own coins. That's how we, uh, we know that this was a commercial center is because they had, the, they had their own mint. And on that coin was the face of Zeus. So they had Zeus on their coins, which tells us that they had a very high regard, again, for this pagan deity. Laodicea is a place of affluence, commercial success, and pagan worship. And in the midst of these two cities, you also have the influence of Greek philosophy, just general Greek philosophy. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the question that I have is then what kind of city does this create? What kind of city was Colossae? Well, um, it had to be that, first of all, that you have a number, a, a combination of different worldviews, different religions. Uh, Colossae was very, like, pluralistic. You have people coming from, from differing perspectives. And, and at the crux of it, you had the influence of pagan polytheism. So, so people who worship multiple gods, these gods all have their different areas of influence. On top of that, you have uh, just general affluence, comfortability. Um, you have the, the rich, the ability to get rich and take care of yourself. And then you have the influence of uh, this Greek philosophy, which basically said that the physical world was bad, and the spiritual world was good. Uh, and the, the world of thought, the world of mind. Like, and, and the best thing that can happen to us is that we can leave the world of the physical, that we could set aside these physical boundaries and somehow ascend into the realm of the spiritual, which is why the philosophers spent so much time simply thinking. Uh, they, they spent so much time simply talking in the world of thought because to leave the physical behind was the best thing that you could do. Now, the reason we talk about all that is because every single statement in this hymn stands in stark contrast to, to the influences of the day. So actually, I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to imagine that you are a Colossian. You're a Christian in the city of Colossae. You probably work in the Colossian markets, um, and where you, what you get in those markets is you get the exchange of ideas because you have people traveling from Aeropolis, people traveling from Laodicea. You have these people sharing their ideas who are, who are talking frequently. And as a Christian in Colossae, you were probably told the good news by a guy named Epaphras. Somebody shared the gospel with you, and, and, and you were, in fact, baptized, and you got to join this group that you now call your church. Now, you've probably, you've had a challenging day on this particular day uh, because you engaged uh, a conversation about spirituality. 
So, uh, so people in, in your marketplace, they started talking. And, and they asked you, um, you know, who do you worship? And, and you were kind of shamed because you talked about how you worship one God. And that was a completely foreign concept to the people of your day. Uh, they had no idea. And so, so when they, they kind of laughed at you when you said that you worship only one God. And then, and then they said, well, tell us more. And so you started to talk about Jesus who, who died and rose again. And, and they found this to, to, to be altogether a ridiculous idea. So on top of that, you have, this, you have this public shaming in your workplace. You, maybe you had another bad interaction with a customer that day. Uh, and maybe you said some things to that customer that you regret. Uh, maybe at the end of the day, you, uh, you didn't get paid as much as you thought you would or you thought you should. Uh, and so because of that, you actually had some thoughts about your boss that weren't all that healthy. Um, and so, so... <laughs> I saw that, Dave. <laughs> um, so, so now you're at the end of your day, and um, you you head to your church gathering, which gathers likely um, every other night, if not every night. And as you as you head into this gathering, you're heading to Epaphras' house. And you're getting ready to walk into his house, and you look over your shoulder, and you see a monument to Zeus. And you wonder, is this even right? Like, you're just worn out from your day and you wonder, how, like, how can I even know that what I'm following is true, that what I'm following is real? And so you walk in the house. And when you arrive, you hear that your church has received a letter and not just any letter, but a letter from one of the most influential Christian in the known world. A guy who has really gotten a lot done. And Epaphras, he's going to read this letter to you, to your church. And so after he gets done giving you probably one of the best encouragements that you've ever heard, uh, he quotes a hymn to you. It's a hymn that you know really, really well. You've gotten to know it over the past couple of years. And so you hear Epaphras read the hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, uh, in order for you to understand how you might have received this if you lived in Colossae, we're going to have to do some breaking down a little bit. So when it says image, what it means is the exact representation. So what was once unknown about God is now displayed with clarity in Christ. When it says firstborn, this is not a statement of of necessarily when he was born, but it's a statement of what his rights are. So firstborn is, is the one who is privileged to an inheritance, and in this case, the inheritance that he's privileged to is all creation. Verse 16, for by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So so this Jesus, who's the image of the invisible God, he in fact created everything. Did you know that there is not one single Greek God who can claim to have created everything? 
That doesn't, that doesn't exist. You don't have a realm. In fact, uh, Greek gods, they had their own, uh, they had realms of authority. Uh, so, so maybe you had a god who was a god of agriculture, and you had the sun god, and you had one god who was god over the, just the heavens and, and these sorts of things. But, but no Greek god could claim to have created, much less created everything. And even if they could, they only had their small, small realms of responsibility. So, so I'm going to throw a quote up here. This is a quote about Zeus from ancient Greece, and this is what it says. It says, oh, Zeus, Father Zeus, yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's your realm. And you watch men's deeds, the crafty and the right, and you, uh, and you who are who cares for beasts, transgression, and justice. So, so Zeus, he's the, the most mighty of the Greek gods, and his realm is the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And it says visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. So as a, as a Colossian, what authorities would you interact with? You hear, uh, you hear about the rule of these gods um, who have these, these different realms of authority, and maybe you cross over those realms as you head throughout your life, your week, your day, and maybe you pay taxes to Caesar. That's another realm of authority that you interact with. So you're in Caesar's realm. You have to pay his taxes. You have a boss who lives in Laodicea, and he, he's taking it easy over there, but, but you're under his authority because you work for him. Uh, you, uh, you're, you're also, as a Christian, you're very aware of the reality of spiritual warfare. You know there are authorities that exist in the spiritual realm. And, and, and you know that, that there are different, different rulers, different things happening in that realm. Now, there's a good side of authority, too, because you know that there are soldiers who are given authority to actually protect you from thieves as you work in the marketplace. Uh, there's a local governor who knows that your church gathers regularly, and right now he's, he's kind of okay with that happening, right? So this is, these, these are good authorities, but the point is that every single one of these authorities is there because Jesus put it there. Every single one of them. He is like the sovereign ruler over creation. And then it says all things were made through him and for him. So he's not only the creator, but he's the means of creation. And he is creation's ultimate purpose. That that everything is made in order to bring glory to him. It is made for him. And this is a good reminder because you see so many people, as you work in the markets from day to day, you see so many people who are simply living for themselves. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Before is a a statement of priority, um, that he is the first to be considered in all of creation. And when it talks about things holding together, that that somehow everything that exists continues to exist because he's actively working to make it so. Like down to the very atomic structure of matter. It's as if he wasn't there holding it together that it all might just fly apart. And so, so at about this point, you've probably noticed that uh, the word all has been repeated over and over and over. Like this, this word, it, it keeps coming up. In fact, it, it happens seven different times just in this passage. And that is a constant reminder to you that, that all those who are in charge, they only have a limited scope of their charge. But Jesus' scope takes all. 
everything. Verse 18. And this one, who has responsibility, who has authority over everything, says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, in everything he might be preeminent. So you spend days, multiple days, being ridiculed for your faith, being told how ridiculous what you believe is. Then this Jesus you follow, this Jesus who, who has authority over everything, what you're told is that, that he plays a special role for this people that you're a part of, this people that you call your church. That with all of his authority, everything that he has that so far exceeds any other authority that you could even imagine, that with all of his authority, he specially loves and leads you and your brothers and sisters. And it says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What this means is that, that in his resurrection, he was the, the, the one who blazed the trail into new life. He's the one who went before us in his resurrection, that, that as he, as he ra- uh, rose from the dead, that we actually get to follow him into that, that we follow him into new life. He forged the path for us out of death. In verse 19, for in, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus has in himself every good, righteous, holy, powerful, mighty characteristic of God because he himself is God. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what you know as you have listened to the teaching of Scripture in your church is that that creation has actually deviated from what was intended for it. That creation is not the way that it's supposed to be, but when it says reconciled, what that means is that things are being brought back. Things are being brought back to how they are supposed to be. That everything will be made right because he paid for it all with his own death. So you, with this day that you've had, the frustrating interactions, uh, the ridicule that you have experienced, and the honestly the awareness of your own brokenness, you hear something like this. So I just I, I want you to listen and, and imagine you are hearing this read for the first time. Jesus displays the God we cannot see with pristine clarity. And he is the owner and inheritor of all existence. He created it all, spiritual and physical, seen and unseen, every power and authority, whether false or legitimate, it all came into existence through him. And its ultimate purpose is to bring him to In all existence, he is the first every single minute piece of it continues to exist.
it is supposed to be because he paid for it with his own blood. These are not static truths, but their intention was to build inside of us awe and wonder at who Jesus is. Because of familiarity, we tend to take this and we just use it to prove theological propositions. Now that's useful. But man, the worship is so, so much better. Now as if that weren't enough, Paul goes a level deeper. And he talks, he talks not just to the church now, but he talks to the individual. He says, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he says, alienated and hostile in mind. So, so Paul, he's, he's not pulling any punches here. He's not afraid to say what needs to be said. Uh, and, and I think what he recognizes is that if you're going to appreciate Jesus for who he is, you really have to understand who you are. That you were alienated that you were hostile. And I think, about, I think about me. Like nothing for me is actually is more powerful than to see my own brokenness because once I understand the extent of my own brokenness, I, I begin to see just how great Jesus is because I see what he saved me from, what he pulled me out of. See, part of the reason that I, that, so I, I became a Christian very early in life um, and, and I struggled for a long time with my faith. And part of the reason that I struggled was because I actually, I failed to see the extent of my own brokenness. So long after I, I trusted in Jesus, I failed to see how desperate of a sinner I was because I was a person who wanted my own agenda. I was a person who disrespected my parents. I was a, a person who just wanted to please people all the time. I, I was a person who, who wanted to claim my own authority over, over what was mine, and I, I didn't want to acknowledge anybody else. I didn't want God to tell me what to do. I didn't give respect to others. I blatantly disobeyed God. Jesus was so worthy of my praise, which was made clear by this passage that we just read. He's so worthy of my praise, and yet my attitude towards him was that of a person who hated him. And if I'm honest, I still sometimes want my own agenda. I still sometimes want to do the thing that I want to do. I still sometimes don't want to acknowledge him for who he is. I still sometimes have a a bit of that hostility left inside of me. And there's there's a debt to pay for that. There's judgment that is do that. But in verse 22, it says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you want to hear the most confounding thing in all of reality? That the one who has the most authority over every single thing in all of creation, He stood above it, but he took on flesh. And it says, in his fleshly body. It didn't have to say, like, Paul went out of his way to say, in his fleshly body. Like, in his body body. That's, like, functionally what he's saying right there. He went out of his way to say it, to prove the point that the God who was in the realm of the spiritual, he came into the physical. He took on flesh, became like us, so that he could die. And the reason he died 
The purpose in dying was so that he could make me, who was hostile, who hated him, he could make me clean before God. The king of existence died to give me life. That's the point, holy. That we could be called holy. That people who hated God at one time could be called holy. That they could stand before God and God could look at them and declare that, that there's no blame to be placed upon you. That, there's, that you are above reproach. That if anybody came before me and tried to accuse you, they could not accuse you because Christ has paid for it. He's taken care of it. And it says, if indeed, if indeed is a, a really weird. So we love our English translations, which is great. And then occasionally, just every once in a while, they, they kind of mess things up. Um, so since, think of this more like since indeed. This is um, since indeed you continue in the faith. It's like it, it's Paul's expectation that it's going to happen. Since indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, this truth is so powerful. In a world that that ridicules and, and, and doesn't understand our faith, doesn't understand this Christ who is king of all creation, in, in a world where, where people are killed for this faith, that this truth could actually provide hope, could provide them something to hold on to. Okay, so what? So what? I have a a few um, points to draw away here. First, Jesus is a better authority. So, So Caesar, he used his power to coerce people, to to force people to pay taxes, to get his own way. He, He used his power in unhelpful ways. And the Greek gods, they use their power. Um, we read about it all the time in Greek mythology. That they use their power to kind of play petty games with mortals and with each other. And, and, and the richest among the people of the day, they lived in luxury. And, and they did that while the poor around them starved and struggled. And, and everywhere you look in the world where, where people have authority, what you see is broken authority. But Jesus, who has more authority than all of those people, he died so that people who hated him could be forgiven. So he not only has more power, but he uses that power to extend grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Second, so what? Um, This is truth that demands a response. So so this passage tells us really clearly who Jesus is. And and if you've never trusted in him or, or followed him, he is a good and loving God. And he invites all people, no matter where they are, whatever way of life they might be following, he invites all people to turn to him and follow him in faith. And everyone, everyone who responds to him this way, with this kind of trust, says they can be a recipient of the blessings that he offers with his authority. The last one's this. Do you need to build your wonder muscle. So, uh, so wonder, believe it or not, wonder is something that we can actually work at. I feel like the, the greatest sins of, of us church folk is that uh, we 
are often all too satisfied with how well we know God. We are often not broken enough to to recognize our own smallness before Him and, and acknowledge how great He is. And we're still broken people. There are still things in us that the Lord needs to change. And the more we familiarize ourselves with our own brokenness, the more we will see how great he is, the more we uncover aspects of his goodness that are so far beyond what we can understand. So in a moment, uh, the worship team is actually going to come up. And this is why we changed the order, because I could not imagine taking this passage in and not responding worship, not responding in song. So we're going to sing together to God in worship because of who he is, what he's accomplished for you. And I can personally tell you that, um, that my heart is often too static as I encounter these amazing truths. And my prayer for myself, for us, is that God would break us out of our familiarity, that we might stand in awe of who he is. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the king of all creation. Of who you are to not be moved by that truth. But Lord, I pray more and more as we acknowledge together the truth that you are king, Lord, that it would move us. And Lord, that beyond that, Lord, that we would understand the extent that our king, who has authority over everything, was willing to go to for our sakes, that we might be a part of this thing called church. Lord, that we might have these people to worship with. Lord, that we might walk in a, in a relationship with you where we could actually, even though we once hated you, even though we were once hostile towards you, we could actually be called holy and blameless and righteous. Lord. We thank you for these gifts. Lord, we ask that you would well up inside of our hearts worship towards you for them. We pray this in our King's mighty name.